I am Nicolas Bornois of Capitalink, and I'm absolutely delighted and honored to uh, welcome you uh, to this uh, session uh, where we're going to welcome uh, Chairman Maffei, uh, who's going to deliver the keynote remarks for this session. The Federal Maritime Commission, the mission is to ensure a competitive and reliable international ocean transportation supply system that supports the US economy and protects the public from unfair and deceptive practices. A native of Syracuse, New York, Commissioner Maffei's career in government spans more than 20 years. He has been with the Federal Maritime Commission as a commissioner since June of 2016, and then as chairman since March of 2021. As a commissioner, Mr. Maffei has shown a particular interest in addressing the vulnerability of the global transportation system to industry-wide financial and security risks. He has focused on the changing nature of the economics of international shipping due to technological advances and to the pressures that newer and larger carriers have placed on US transportation infrastructure. Now, global supply chain issues have been at the forefront on a daily basis. And the broader public has become a lot more aware of the critical role of shipping as the artery of global trade. The Commission, the Federal Maritime Commission, has placed increased attention on addressing global supply chain challenges and has taken several initiatives in this direction. So it is a great privilege to have Chairman Maffei with us and look forward to his keynote remarks. Before turning the floor over to him, I would like to mention that after his introductory keynote remarks, these will be followed by a panel discussion moderated by the director of the Port of New York, New Jersey with panelists representing global liner and logistics companies, as well as three members of the recently established National Shipper Advisory Committee on Ocean Freight with major cargo importers and exporters into and from the US. Chairman Maffei, it is a great privilege to have you with us. Thank you so much, uh, and the floor is yours. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure and uh, really grateful for that uh, introduction and for uh, the, this conference. Um, I am very pleased to have the opportunity to, to speak at it. Uh, I do want to note that while I'm chairman of the commission, I'm only one of five members. And what I say today represents my views and not necessarily those of the full FMC. Now, as you point out, we are facing extraordinary times in, open, in, in ocean shipping. Um, I was a member of Congress in a past, uh, past life and used to deal with controversial issues all the time, such as healthcare reform and the war in Afghanistan and immigration. So I left all that and was appointed to the Federal Maritime Commission. And I thought this is a great opportunity to work on important policy, but without having to really deal with much of the, the attention or the limelight. It, it really just never occurred to me when most people haven't even heard of the ocean transportation supply chain, that the president of the United States would have a press conference about it. So uh, despite all my hopes of avoiding media attention, the ocean transportation system, and by extension, the FMC are now front and center. Now, since COVID, we've had dramatic swings in cargo space supply and demand, culminating in now uh, the most record-setting year ever in terms of cargo coming in being processed by our ports. Uh, the LA Long Beach port complex is expected to handle more than 20 million TEUs by the end of the year, and that's a massive record-breaking figure. And there's similar, uh, if not quite as large, uh, record-breaking figures at, at all of our uh, major ports. Now, there's a continuing demand by Americans for consumer goods, 
was started largely due to that online shopping during COVID. The United States has brought in more ocean freight in less time than ever before in our nation's history. Exports are also up substantially, including even agricultural exports, but, but that increase only looks modest when compared with the explosion of imports. The spike in demand for imports has pushed cargo rates to record high. For example, the September spot rate to move a 40-foot container from Shanghai to LA was $11,300 and more than five times higher than in September 2019 before COVID. And look, depending on the specific circumstances, the actual rate to book a Trans-Pacific box could cost much more than that. And this is without even including the congestion surcharges that can sometimes add thousands of dollars to shippers' costs. The rates, of course, just tell part of the story. There's just not enough space on ships for all the shippers that want space, and cargo is often turned down due to lack of space or bumped. Once on a ship, congestion-related delays of many days or even weeks are commonplace. On the West Coast now, dozens of ships are lining up outside uh, San Pedro Bay waiting to be unloaded. Key container gateways around the country, including even the facilities at New York and New Jersey, I'm sure you'll hear about that, they don't have the lines, okay? So they're, they're, they're definitely uh, doing better than LA and Long Beach in that sense, but they are facing vast increases in demand for port goods and they have many congestion related issues. So if you imagine the supply chain as a four lane highway, most of the time it is sufficient enough to handle the capacity, but the increased traffic clogs the highway. And that is essentially what's happening now. It's sort of like we have eight lanes or nine lanes worth of container volume trying to squeeze into four lanes because of the overwhelming demand of American consumers and companies. It's primarily a supply and demand problem and there's simply more demand for ocean transportation than there is capacity. As my colleague, Commissioner Lou Sola has said, everyone is responsible, but no one is to blame. Now the FMC is charged with ensuring a competitive and reliable international ocean freight system that supports the US economy and protects the public from unfair and deceptive practices. And, and we do believe that at no time in decades has that mission been so important. But of course, you do know that the Shipping Acts of 1984 and 1998 provided for a largely deregulated market-based international ocean freight system. But we do have some authority to act in some key areas to try to lessen the burden on American shippers. Over the past slightly more than a year, the commission has initiated several actions to address fees. Uh, in spring of last year, we unanimously approved a rule that I believe said in essence that detention demerge fee must primarily be an incentive for moving cargo and returning equipment. Um, and if the person, if the entity being charged, a shipper, a trucker, intermediary cannot move that cargo or return the, uh, their equipment for something beyond their control, they should not be charged. I thought this was pretty simple, but in practice, it has not been implemented across the board. So late last year, reacting to reports that uh, they may not be properly heeding the rules out there, the FMC launched an investigation of detention, purge, container return, and export carriage policies at our nation's two largest port complex complexes. And to make sure that people knew we were serious, we put Commissioner Rebecca Dye in charge of it. In addition to that investigation, in July, I used my own administrative authority to launch an audit to determine whether and how D&D rules were being implemented by the major carriers. As part of their work, the team sought examples of model behavior by individual carriers that should become industry standards. Um, I expect uh, the audit team leader will announce some detention and demerge best practices that have been identified by their work to date. And I, I, you know, these are right now suggested, but embracing and implementing these best practices would be an act of good faith that the carriers could take immediately. Further, it would demonstrate good corporate behavior and citizenship that has uh, been that has not always been evident in how lines have conducted themselves uh, over the past uh, year. 
Now, taking what we've learned from these efforts and following one of Commissioner Dye's recommendations, the Commission approved in September additional rulemaking to clarify exactly what is required of those charging detention and demerge, including some of their billing practices. For example, it, it has appeared that sometimes a bill is just sent out without any real effort on the part of the billing party to make sure the fee follows the rule. Now, if appealed, the billing party often does <clears throat> you know, waive the fee, but sometimes the party getting billed isn't even the right party. And if they don't take care of it, the biller will suspend pickups or some other draconian measure. And that's not what the FMC meant in my opinion. <clears throat> in addition, on August 2nd of this year, the FMC launched an enforcement investigation of several carriers leveling so-called congestion surcharges and, simple, and similar add-on fees. One of them even called it a value-added fee. In my view, these views, these fees can sometimes be justified for special circumstances or sometimes for, for particular kinds of bunker charges. But for congestion, congestion has gone on for months and is at every major port in the world. If this, these fees are really just an add-on to the freight rate, then carriers should be honest and transparent about that and include it in the rate. Uh, now we're taking many of these steps to protect against unreasonable practices in the industry. Um, including we're also going to, uh, well, we already are beefing up our Bureau of Enforcement and our Office in Consumer Affairs and Dispute Resolution, and we do intend to have an export advocate uh, in that office. We have seen an uptick in private party complaints filed with the commission, and we're going to continue to try to take action to make sure that um, there is no undue disincentive to file such cases. Finally, um, as, as just mentioned, the commission has uh, moved forward and stood up the National Shipper Advisory Committee created by Congress, actually again on a recommendation by Commissioner Dye. It's comprised of 24 members. I think uh, I, uh, Ken O'Brien and Steve Hughes, I know, are on it, and they're on the next panel you'll hear from. Um, we're really excited to have this resource available. We do believe their advice will be very valuable in informing the Commission on policies it can pursue that benefit competitiveness and reliability, the integrity and fairness of the international ocean freight system. Now we are taking action and we'll continue to look for more ways to help with the help of that uh, advisory committee and others. But some of the requests I get from shippers and ocean freight intermediaries are well beyond the limits of our uh, abilities that the commission is allowed to take. Most significantly, we do not have the authority to set ocean freight rates. Under the law, rising freight rates, no matter how high or how quickly they may have risen, are not in and themselves violations. Um, when we hear terms like price gouging, you know, we look into them, but in terms of the shipping law, uh, if, if uh, the sky high prices are due to sky high demand, that's nothing that we can tell the carriers to stop doing, um, unless somehow the carriers have manipulated the market, and we have yet to find any actionable evidence of that. In fact, steamship lines are not limiting supply, but ordering more new ships and more new containers. The FMC also cannot establish preferences for certain kinds of cargo, no matter how important that cargo may seem. And we can't demand that carriers take more exports. I know people are complaining that small and medium-sized shippers, like even some family companies, um, agricultural exporters, and then importers of certain kinds of really important products like chemicals for sewage treatment or parts that are desperately needed by US manufacturers. A lot of people are complaining that, that you know, these uh, particular players are, are not doing well and they deserve better. Well, I might personally agree that they deserve better, but their merit does not translate into market power. And we still have a market-based system. So if you want that change, you'll have to go see my former colleagues in Congress because we at the FMC just don't have that authority. Now, the FMC is an independent agency. 
We're not part of the Biden administration in terms of its Department of Transportation or Department of Commerce. We serve independently. But I do want to compliment the president and the DOT for taking the actions it announced yesterday to help keep the supply chain moving. I do believe that more work in the off hours at our biggest port complex, combined with the pledges of some of the largest shippers in the country to keep cargo flowing at night, will increase cargo velocity. Now, in the last day, I have seen a lot of naysayers saying essentially that the president has, doesn't have the power to fix all these issues. And so he's making a big mistake trying to help here. I truly hope that we have not become so cynical as a nation that we believe that because a president doesn't have formal authority to solve all the problems in the short run, that he shouldn't even get involved. The president saw a need and is helping in a positive way. Uh, uh, and, and, and some of the stuff that he is doing both Republicans and Democrats have advised him to do. So I, for one, applaud it. In fact, it, it does inspire me to continue to find ways within the authority granted to the Federal Maritime Commission by the Shipping Act to make things easier for shippers during, this, the, uh, during all this complex issues. Um, one of those ways is to hear from you and to make sure that we stay in good touch with all of you. So um, I will be listening carefully to the next panel um, and watching remarks uh, being made at this uh, New York Maritime Forum. And I know I'm gonna hear from many of you in the future. So thank you very much for your time and attention today. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for these uh, very important remarks. Uh, and thank you for inaugurating the session um, on the global supply chain um, issues. So thank you, sir, for being with us. And uh, I look forward to having you with us again next year, if not even sooner. Hopefully in person, though. Uh, hopefully in person. I want to make sure that uh, we, we get people to New York. We hope so. Uh, I mean, we were planning to do this event uh, in person, uh, but I think... Yeah, no, no, I, I don't blame you this year. I'm just saying that. I think let's, 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 cross our let's cross our fingers for next year. The trend is positive, so we look forward to it. Great. Thank Thanks, Nicholas. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm uh, Nicholas Bornos of Capital Inc., and I'm indeed uh, particularly privileged to welcome you to uh, this uh, uh, panel discussion. This discussion is coming after the introductory remarks of the chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission, Mr. Daniel Maffei. And uh, I would like to mention that uh, the New York Maritime, Capital Links New York Maritime Forum that we host every year, it's been organized in partnership with DNB, with the cooperation of the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, but also uh, always with the cooperation of the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, and the New York Economic Development Corporation. So. This forum aims not only to discuss about what's happening in the global uh, commodity, energy, and shipping markets, but also to highlight the role of New York uh, as a major global maritime hub. So this panel today is going to address one of the most critical topics of today, global supply chain challenges. And as we were discussing before coming online, uh, it is very interesting that the wider public, I think, is becoming more and more aware of the absolutely critical role of shipping as a link in the global supply chain and global commerce. So we have with us an amazing panel uh, with stakeholders from various uh, areas. For example, Sam Ruda, who is going to moderate the panel. Of course, he is a director of the Port of New York, New Jersey. We have with us also representatives of... Uh, 
uh, liner companies, global logistics companies, and also three members of the nationally established uh, super committee on ocean freight, the advisory committee composed of major importers and exporters of cargo in and out of the U.S. So without any more delay, I would like to thank you all. Thank you, uh, Sam. I will let you introduce everybody. Uh, and thank you to all of you. I, I know that some of you have to change your schedule to be part of this uh, panel. So I'm particularly grateful to you for uh, all of you for joining. Great. Well, thank you, uh, Nicholas, uh, very much. I'm Stan Ruda. I'll be your moderator today. Uh, in my day job, I'm the port director for the Seaport Division of the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey. I do want to thank uh, Capital Inc. for hosting the, the New York Maritime uh, Forum. Um, just my, a few opening comments from my side, and then we're going to get to uh, uh, Q&A uh, with our distinguished panelists. But let me just add to what Nick said. Uh, not since uh, Jackie Kennedy uh, married Aristotle Onassis has shipping been so prominently <laughs> featured in the news. Uh, indeed, shipping ports as well as supply chain and logistics are today daily features, uh, both in the national and global media. Uh, the backlog of vessels in South, Southern California and elsewhere is now a daily news uh, event. Uh, the issue is front and center yesterday uh, at the White House, where basically everyone was talking about our industry and our business. Uh, since, this, since this is the New York Maritime Forum, you know, I can tell you that at the Port of, Port of New York and New Jersey, you know, fortunately, uh, we are moving record amounts of cargo but the cargo is moving. Year to date through August, we're up about 27%. Uh, While this is not the only metric in terms of port performance, it seems to be very topical in the news, the number of vessels at Anchorage as of this morning, uh, we had about uh, three, and actually not about three, exactly three. So the vessels are for the most part coming in and, and moving. It's not to say that the system isn't stress, we're operating at very, very high uh, utilizations. That said, the demands on the maritime and inland supply chain are in fact massive. Just at the Port of New York and New Jersey, we've essentially had five plus years of cargo growth in the span of 18 months. To talk about all these challenges, I'm really pleased. We have just a great lineup of six distinguished uh, uh, panelists. Uh, Ken O'Brien, president of Gemini Shippers Group, Ken is also on the National Shipper Advisory Committee for the Federal Maritime Commission. Uh, we have Steve Hughes, President and CEO of HCS International, and I know that they're heavily involved in the automotive aftermarket supply chain. Uh, Steve is also uh, on the FMC Shipper Advisory Committee. Uh, Bill Rooney, uh, VP Strategic Development, Kunago, a huge background in our industry on the carrier side as well. Uh, from the uh, public sector, Andrew Ginn, Senior Vice President, Ports and Transportation, New York City Economic Development Corporation. Uh, we have Rick DeMeo, Senior Vice President, Supply Chain Operations uh, from Office Depot. Uh, Rick is also on the FMC Shipper Advisory Committee. And I'm really pleased to also have John Butler, President and CEO of the World Shipping Council. So the run of show here quickly is going to be a Q&A forum. We have about uh, eight or nine uh, questions, all very topical. 
these are designed sort of as an open forum. Uh, panelists are, are, are free to choose, you know, do they want to participate? But we have plenty of questions and we'll try to accommodate uh, everyone. So really just getting out of the gate uh, to kickstart this. First question is, as we look at the current state of affairs in, in the, with the maritime inbound supply chain, you know, where are we right now as far as managing our way through this? You know, more specifically, are things getting better, worse, or are we just muddling along? And whoever wants to jump in first, be my guest. I'm not going to call you individually. But <laughs> hey, uh, hey, 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 Sam, I'll, I'll just jump in. I, I would say, while there have been a couple of minor signs of some improvement, for example, in, in China, the number of ships at anchor outside Ningbo and Shanghai is down a fair amount in the last couple of weeks. You've seen rate levels sort of peak from very, very high levels. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's sort of the good news, but it's really sort of, sort of skimpy. I think the, the, to answer your question is I, th I think in the U.S. It's, it's certainly no better. Is it worse? Uh, maybe. And I think in the, as things move inland, it'll get worse in certain places. So I would say my answer would be, is it getting better? Absolutely not. And, it, and in certain places, it is getting worse. Uh, and, and particularly when, you're, when you start looking at things from the West Coast inland or the East Coast and inland, it's, I don't see it getting any better. Not now, at least. Who else would like to weigh in? Well, if I can uh, pick up on what Bill said on the anchorages off, off of uh, China right now, I think a lot of that could be affected by the uh, power outages that we're seeing in China, which yeah. is shutting down not just factories, but residential areas so or in whole cities. So that's going to have an effect on, on the amount of cargo ending up in those ports. So I think that's that's part of it. But uh, I'm on the West Coast, and if I look out my window, I see a lot of ships on the water that I've never seen before. So uh, I don't see it getting any any better. And and I'm afraid we're going to, if power starts going up in Asia, I think we're going to see another rush. Yeah, this is, this is Rick from Office Depot. I'll tell you, to build on both of those, once you move that freight inland and start to think about the mm. impact on the, uh, on the shippers, on the retailers, on the people trying to satisfy customer needs, we... We don't just have this industry that's in distress. We have last mile transportation as well and the growth of e-com. All of the freight in these cans is hopefully eventually getting into the hands of customers, but we're creating other bottlenecks that we're not talking about in this forum uh, downstream. I guess we'll all be talking in other conferences in the weeks to come about those modes, but uh, there is distress all the way through. Yeah, I think that's, this is John Butler. I think, you know, I, think Rick's comment's important because one, define getting worse and getting better. Um, you know, Sam, as you said, we're moving record amounts of cargo. I mean, typically that would be a good news story, right? But this thing probably only unwinds when that demand starts to drop off. So, you know, there's a little bit of careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. I think to Rick's point, this is not a port congestion issue or know some other particular point in the supply chain it's a it's a whole of supply chain congestion issue and in that way it's probably different from from situations we've seen before we've seen in the past sort of episodic situations with with labor or weather but it's tended to be geographically limited and, and limited in time this is everywhere all the time yeah. and, and it's a really different set of circumstances 
Thanks. Uh, Kim, th thank you. Kim? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say, you know, I would probably put myself in the category of saying we're we're muddling along. Um, you know, and I think, you know, John's John's totally correct in saying, you know, there's a there's a there's a tightness of matching of supply and demand. Um, something has to give. And I think on the on the demand side, you know, American consumers have have not relented, right? We continue to buy at record pace. Um, you know, when you look at uh, when you look at all of the numbers on consumption versus spending um, in services, um, consumption's up, services down, and, and and hasn't you know relented. And I think when you you, know, you flip side, if if the demand won't come off, well, can the supply go up? And I think you know beyond what everything on the ocean carrier side they've done to increase capacity, there's only so much. There's only so many ships. And I think when you get to the land side. Um, even if we could get more ships, can we can we get them through the port infrastructure and, and into the into the consumer's hand? I think there's a there's a challenge there, and I think we are hitting in many places in the United States um, those those critical limits where the system is just you know at design limit, and it'll be hard to hard to move you know much more through. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey Sam, let me add one thing. What what doesn't get covered right. in the press, and and people have covered it here a little bit, is it's all along the supply chain, which you yep. hear that, but it's not just the ships, it's the terminals, it's the containers, it's the chassis, it's trucking, it's the rail network, it's the rail ramps, everything has been overcome. And the root cause is, 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 is as was just pointed out by Ken, way too, not too much volume, but more volume than this network has been able to absorb. You can't absorb a 20% to 30% increase in volume for, and a, a set of fixed assets across a sea logistics network from my perspective. Yeah, great. You know, I, I wanna I wanna continue like a follow-on question. This is gonna be for John Butler, but uh, from uh, World Shipping uh, Council, but a little context, you know, again, just from uh, the window of the Port Authority of, of, of New York, I talked about, you know, record, record volumes and, and, you know, but we're not the only one with record volumes. So that's really not, not the point. But it's kind of interesting. I look at our data on a monthly basis, and you know, year to date through through August of, of, of this year, you know, just in terms of number of container vessels, uh, we're we're actually have had an increase in the number of actual ships, but it's actually not statistically significant. We're up maybe about thirty five ships year to date. What is more interesting is that the average size, we've seen a 30% increase in the number of ships greater than 9,000 TEUs. So clearly larger vessels coming into the uh, to, to the port. So obviously at the shipping side, container shipping side, obviously the ship, the ships are actually you know, moving, uh, they're bigger and moving larger amounts of, of cargo. You know, but with sort of with that little bit of a context you know, to, to John, you know, this sort of a open-ended question here, but, you know, what are your carrier members telling you about near-term capacity outlook in the container shipping industry? And, you know, could you provide some color too on the impacts to the existing capacity, just given all these birthing delays, not, not just in Southern California, but sort of globally? Sure. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, I kind of referred to it earlier. I mean, every every available container ship in the world is, is employed, right? Uh, if it's not on the water, it's in dry dock basically. And so, and you know, the people have their new build programs, but that takes, takes time. So 
all the capacity is out there that's out there is being deployed. And frankly, a lot of it has been pulled into the U.S. trades. Um, you know, we've got folks in other parts of the world that are maybe not tremendously happy about that. Um, but, you know, the market has sent up the signal that, hey, we've got demand here and, and the ships have followed, you know, including new services from, from carriers that haven't typically called the West Coast, for example. So in terms of deploying the assets, that's, that's happened. You know, the second part of your question is, okay, with all of the congestion, what's the effective utility of those assets? And the answer is obviously, if you've got ships sitting at anchor, they're not moving cargo, right? So um, in this business, capacity equals velocity. So if it's not moving, it's not working, and you have less effective capacity. And that's obviously what we've what we've run into, and not just in the U.S., but but globally, and it has different causes in different places, right? Uh, we've got a whole bunch of ships stacked up off of Southern California. You know the traffic jams in front of you, not behind you, when you're sitting in the queue. Uh, yeah. In different parts of the world, it's been production delays, um, but the the net result is the same. We've got a really lumpy supply chain on top of all this volume. So we're not moving things collectively through the system as efficiently as as we do in normal time. Yeah. I, I like that term, lumpy supply chain. I think that that's, uh, that's, that is well said. You know, we're, we're gonna move on to the second question. And, 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 and on one level, it's a, it's a basic question, but given that we have such a broad, you know, set of, you know, uh, experts with different, different cargoes and, visibility to shippers and interaction with shippers. Uh, the question is, you know, from your individual experience, where are you seeing the biggest supply chain bottlenecks uh, right now? And it doesn't have to be one, it can be m multiple. So I'll, I'll open that up, uh, same, same format to anyone that wants to jump in first. Well, I'll, I'll jump in first and follow on to Thanks. what we started, um, Beyond Ocean and, uh, and the challenges to get it, as Bill Rooney said, through all the different modes of transportation, you know, there are labor challenges that, um, that uh, a lot of the BCOs see uh, in warehousing and in trucking as well. And then uh, the final mile, uh, whether it's a national provider or, or regional, uh, responding to the e-commerce growth has been on fire for the past 18 months. And uh, mm -hmm. as people work from home and shop from home um, and diverted funds from services to products, uh, it has been uh, literally we've been chasing that capacity uh, almost since we went home last March or two Marches ago now. And um, that, that is going to be a real challenge this fall season. So unlocking the goods and getting them off the boats is important. And then figuring out how to get it to the customers is becoming even more important. It's a, it, it's a fight all the way through. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. If, if I may, uh, uh, I, I see a, a problem at the gate more than anything. And uh, this goes back to a committee that uh, where Ken and I originally met was the FMC supply chain innovations team. I think it was in 2016. Um, we had 32 or 33 different stakeholders in this meeting. We broke into three teams and the, and the output was, or the request was come back and tell us the one thing that needs to be uh, addressed at the ports more than anything. And all three teams came back with the same thing efficiency at the front gate, getting throughput at the front gate. Um, 
so what I'm hearing in press is that it's driver shortage, driver shortage, driver shortage. I'm sorry, if you don't have the efficiency at the gate, if you can't get dual transactions, if you can't eliminate triangle moves, if you, if you can't supply chassis, adding drivers is going to do nothing but increase the length of the line. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it doesn't matter how efficient the, the uh, terminal works, how, how, how efficient labor is, if you still have a bottleneck in getting that, those cans moved out of the terminal, it doesn't matter what's happening behind that gate. So that to me is, is ultimately the biggest, biggest problem we've got. We've, we saw some news yesterday coming out of the White House, I think expanding gate hours here on the West Coast and having uh, the major BCOs commit to moving a lot of their goods during the, uh, the, the night hours. I think that's gonna help, uh, hopefully. Uh, th thank you, uh, Steve. Anyone else? Hey, I, I would just, uh, just it, it's not really one thing. Uh, I mean, the, again, I believe the root cause is, is this rush of significant amounts of cargo pressing up against a limited number of physical assets. That's the start. But when you look at uh, full warehouses, what the, uh, in New York area, Southern California, the vacancy rate is under 2%. So you've got full warehouses, no place for cargo to go. So what ends up happening is the dwell time or the, the time from a gate out to a gate in is doubled which is using sucking up not only boxes, but cha particularly chassis. Mm -hmm. And that's the, and, and when you don't have a chassis, you can't really do anything. So I think this issue of the, the cargo volumes and the impact it's had on warehousing, particularly in Southern California and the New York metro area, that impact on boxes and chassis has been really, really significant. And I would venture and, and go out and say that the chassis business model has been broken for about 10 years anyway. And this is just a, <laughs> a greater indication of the fact that it is broken. And uh, so I would say the warehouse is being full and the impact of that on boxes and chassis is, is maybe not the biggest, uh, it's not the only thing, but it's significant. Yeah, really, really that's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm gonna move on. I wanna ask Andrew Gann from uh, New York City Economic Development Corporation a, a, a question, you know, the five boroughs, and I don't have to explain this to, to, to Andrew, but it's its its, its own sort of micro, well, macro uh, economy. It's so it's so large and also so dense. So it so it has its own sort of supply chain, you know, universe unto itself. So, how is New York City dealing with the challenges of the new supply chain uh, mm -hmm. paradigm, led by the substantial growth in e-commerce, which has also been you know exasperated and propelled because of the uh, pandemic. I Thank you, Sam. You know, I, I guess uh, listening to everyone here, you know, we are the end of the spigot. And um, I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, the city adjusting to these trends, well, we're, we're the demand side. And what's happened in within New York City for the first time in, you know, since I've been in New York is the development of fulfillment centers, distribution centers, warehouses right inside the city in land that everyone assumed was too high value, you know, the views are too pretty, you know, to ever be considered for an industrial use. But now that, you know, uh, fulfillment centers literally growing out of the ground in places like 
Red Hook, um, you know, actually beginning in Staten Island on the West Shore. And we and we, we saw that we said, oh, OK, well, that makes some sense. It's kind of like New Jersey over there, you know, over the Gothels Bridge. But then when they started popping up, you know, in Red Hook, um, all over um, the South uh, Bronx uh, area, Maspeth in Queens, we knew something was up, you know, and um, for us as a municipality, you know, we, you know, we are very much a truck centric last mile city. We get 120,000 trucks a day crossing basically two bridges, you know, into the city um, with a forecast of the demand going up by 68% by 2045. Um, so that means about 44 to 75,000 additional trucks. And our, if, in case you don't know, you know, our infrastructure is a little bit long in the tooth. So we are we are definitely adjusting to this and looking at uh, all different ways, including activating, you know, maritime uh, for short sea shipping, marine highway, um, uh, using the marine terminals and maybe even using things like the cruise terminals and the ferry landings um, to be able to handle this freight. Um, and at the same time, looking at the streets, because, you know, we put restaurants in the streets since COVID, we've got bike lanes, but, you know, um, it's kind of um, uh, astonishing to see the amount of freight from all of the package carriers uh, and even food distributors, you know, vying for space at the curb. So uh, we have a lot to do to modernize the system and we, and we are taking on that challenge. Thank, thank you, Andrew. So uh, full disclosure here, I, this, my next question uh, really comes less from my experience at the, at the Port Authority, but comes more from my experience working for uh, Nike. And while there's always uh, appropriately a, a focus on the finished goods inbound supply chain, and I, I know just from my learnings from, from Nike, the, the raw material production sourcing is also a supply chain unto itself. And it, in the case of Nike, it, it, it drives actually where you produce uh, things. So it, it's not just you produce where it's a low cost. Uh, Philippines, as an example, is a low cost uh, uh, origin to produce, but there's no raw materials to manufacture the goods. Thus, it's not a sourcing, big sourcing location for, for footwear. So sort of with this, you know, focus on the raw material, the front end of the supply chain, uh, you know, what are you, what are you seeing with respect to the raw material supply chain at the front end of the manufacturing order cycle? Are you seeing bottlenecks there as well? Um, so from my experience, uh, when inputs, uh, uh, for manufacturing substantially delayed, uh, depending upon your inventory, manufacturing ends up being stopped. I mean, uh, during the 2014-15 uh, labor uh, uh, discussions out here, uh, we had uh, inputs that were stuck on ships so long that we were close, we were within days of laying off 150 plus people because we weren't going to have the inputs to finish, to produce finished goods. Um, in our current situation, this is especially true with those companies using GIT in their inventory model. So it, it's, a, it's definitely a challenge. Thanks, Steven. Any, anybody else? So 
So, I, you know, Sam, I'd say, you know, and John brought it up that, you know, we, we talk a lot about the Trans-Pacific and the inbound uh, finished good trade, but, you know, a, as more and more ships have been driven into the U.S. market to, to meet that demand, right, they've come from somewhere else. And, and, you know, John used the words, there's other places that might not be so happy about that. Many of those other trade lanes are intra-Asia lanes that are feeding the raw materials into China for, to, to keep the manufacturing engine going. And so, you know, there's a, you, you need to look at both sides of the equation. And I think obviously we tend to, we tend to publicize the, the, the final piece, but, uh, but there's no doubt that, you know, the factory piece and, and our group, we work with, you know, over 200 companies in a lot of different commodities, um, sourcing the raw materials for everything from auto parts to electronics to clothes, each one has its unique challenges, but but generally speaking, when you add the, the 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 challenges of COVID and factory closures, things like electricity, on top of getting raw materials and the price of those raw materials skyrocketing, you know many many manufacturers are really um, quite taxed. Yeah, interesting. Anybody else on the, on this? Uh... Yeah, this is this is Rick. I'll, I'll tell you that. I find our, our team longing for the days when it was just uh, tariff wars, <laughs> finding alternate sourcing methods over there uh, just based on tariffs. And uh, it, it almost was a training ground for our folks because the complexity now has to do with port closures, capacity, tariffs. It's a, it's a pretty complicated puzzle. And so whoever said early on, it's not just the cheapest wins. Um, that's absolutely the case. And, and where I see it is in you know, our folks in the offices, in our sourcing offices, in our logistics teams, constantly evaluating the condition in those markets to figure out where we can move our capacity and get goods on a boat and moving. Great, great. Uh, anyone else? We should move on. Yeah. All right. Why don't we move on? Um, are you expecting to see any changes in sourcing strategies, sourcing locations as a result of the current supply chain issues? You know, if so, any specifics that you can share? I'm not probing for anything proprietary here, but you know, uh, I, I think that you know, problems are always an input to you know changing strategies. So that's the context of the question. Well, you know, this in this kind of a situation, it's really difficult. I mean, uh, who would have thought that this issue would still be hanging over our heads uh, here almost two years later? Um, and in, in our industry, um, changing a source can take upwards of two years to make that kind of a change. Um, so uh, with, with the situation changing almost on a monthly basis, how do you say we need to change a source? Um, and in capital intensive businesses like uh, the, the brake industry, um, this is a really difficult thing to move from let's say China to uh, Vietnam or in India if they don't have the infrastructure, if they don't have the manufacturing already. Um, and it's, it's a very, very long and, and intensive product or process that is. Hey, uh, Sam, I, I would, uh, to follow on to what Steve just said, I mean, it's a really complex, from my dealings with customers over many, many years, it's a really complex question. Um, and I think uh, Steve is spot on with the, the length of time it takes to make a change. Yeah. But, but I would add is 
you know, changes in sourcing have been going on forever and ever. I mean, I, when I was growing up, the sneakers I, I had when I was a little kid were made in Lowell, probably Lowell, Massachusetts, right? They weren't made uh, in- Oh, you're dating in, yourself. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they were brown and high cuts and they were PF flyer, <laughs> PF flyers. Lynn or but, Lowell. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in any case, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. You've heard right. a lot about China plus one. You have all these political ramifications around the relationship between China and the U.S. and that kind of thing. But there's and, and people have been searching out lower cost labor. You talk to the garment people. They're always generally the first ones to move. And, and I think the last thing I would say is you have you, you take world trade from 1990 to 08. It was growing at 10 percent of your gangbusters. Since then, it grows three, four percent a year, maybe, maybe five. So it's much slower. And you have a lot more regional trade now than you did uh, it's a much, much bigger part of trade than, say, global supply chains, and it's going to keep growing. So, I mean, it's hard to say, and there's just so many inputs from political to labor costs and those kind, and energy costs and those kinds of things. Um, and, I, you know, I just think it's going to be, I think that the underlying trends are going to continue, whether this COVID thing has an effect on those underlying trends. I, to be honest, I sort of doubt a little bit. Uh, yeah. The much more important trends are the, the long-term trends politically uh, and economic growth around the world, that kind of thing. Well, and, co and commercially too, because uh, in our industry, if your competitor all of a sudden finds a better source and you're seeing that you're at a disadvantage price-wise, your purchasing and your marketing people are, are looking, okay, how do, we, how do we compete? So you'll end up having to possibly look at a different country with a lower labor rate to get uh, get to that point. And if you look at the trends, to your point, um, in the 60s, there was a lot of product manufactured here. Then all of a sudden, we started getting product made in Japan. And then in our industry, we started sourcing product from Mexico and Brazil. And everybody's competing for that price point or for that next best vendor. And, and so that uh, shifted from Japan when Japan's economy grew and their, their uh, Labor rates increase with their with their uh, income. Uh, people shifted to Taiwan, then Korea, and then to China. What's the next market that people are going to go to to source for pricing? Hey, hey Sam, let me let me jump in and, and mention one thing that I should have mentioned before. I think the one thing that I think may come out of this pandemic is the fact that uh, customers and, and to, not to bring up Lowell, Massachusetts again, but but you know, a number of years ago, people had a supply chain that was 500 miles long, 700 miles long. Yeah. They now have a supply chain that's 7,000 miles long, and they're just discovering that that's a risky proposition. Or a 7,000 mile uh, supply mm -hmm. chain involving foreign several foreign countries when you're assembling parts and everything else is a much more risky proposition. And 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 with CEOs and CFOs being grilled with questions about supply chains by financial analysts. That's something that may come out may come out of this pandemic is people understanding that a seven thousand mile supply chain has some risks they weren't aware of, yeah. or got lulled to sleep about. Thanks. Yeah. No. Good. Good. Good point. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move on, and uh, I'll, I'll preface this by saying uh, at the front end, this is kind of a, a big question, uh, but open to every everyone, uh, and it's kind of about regulation, deregulation, but the, uh, the sort of the, the intro to the question is, you know, we're, we're about 40 plus years into the transportation deregulatory era in the United States, maybe a bit less uh, for ocean shipping uh, reform, but fundamentally, 
The main modes of transportation in the US are in fact deregulated, truck, rail, aviation, and uh, international ocean shipping. There may or may not be causation here, uh, but we certainly have seen significant consolidation in many of these modes, if not, if not all. So the question is, has there been too much consolidation in the transportation uh, sector? And is there a need for some rethink in the uh, regulatory framework? Uh, I know that's a lot, but I, I think this is very topical right, right now, uh, given the situation that, 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 that we're in. Sam, I'll, I, I'll bite on that to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. We, there has been, you know, over the whole time I've been doing this, I won't say how long, but there's been significant, um, significant number of, of, of mergers and acquisitions and consolidation um, on the ocean side. But by the same token, it's still a really, um, it's, it's not a concentrated industry. It's, it's still uh, exceedingly uh, competitive. And, you know, you look back, okay, set COVID aside and everything being turned on its head. But if you look back from, you know, early 2020, back 20 years, what deregulation did was give you, you know, more service at lower prices to more places. So, you know, there's a, there's always a tendency when you have a, a crisis or an unusual situation to pretend that that is the baseline or that that represents really what the structure of the industry is. And, and of course, that's, that's an incorrect way to look at it. So I think it's pretty clear that while we have had consolidation, we're nowhere near a concentrated industry. Um, and you, you, know, you raised the question about, is there causation? I think the answer is clearly no. I mean, it's not, cons it's not consolidation that's led to our current situation, it's COVID. It's a different C. <laughs> no, that's uh, uh, John uh, really, really well said. Uh, O open forum here. Oh, I thought it was a big question. <laughs> well, I, I, Sam, I mean, I, I, I agree with, I mean, I mean, you can look at the, I mean, if you look at underlying reasons for the consolidation, uh, which I, which I agree with John is, is not been excessive. And in fact, customers are able to, and, and I think maybe Steve and Rick might disagree, but I think given what's happened and, and including the, the use of alliances has improved the ability of carriers to, su to supply a more global service to their customers, that kind of thing. But I think one of the things that I think gets forgotten in this is the underlying returns over many, many, many years of the people who actually own those assets, who actually own the ships, whether directly as a carrier or a charter, you know, the carriers charter about half, I guess, John would know better, but, but the returns, you know, were, were, have been so, bad over many, many years, it, the consolidation was not a surprise at all. And I think that's going to happen in any industry when your returns are six, seven percent under your cost of capital, you're going to, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get uh, consolidation. And I think people need to remember that over, as I said, many, you know, almost since the inception of the business, the rates have been at a level that have generated returns that are well below the, co the, the real cost of capital 
you, know, you can talk about subsidies and the rest of it, but but I think that's what happens when you have those those kind of returns. You get consolidation, but they, I don't think consolidation has really it's has it you know has it affected the service. I think it has, and I think in many ways because the alliance has it affected it has affected it positively. Just great. Um, okay. Uh, really thoughtful comments uh, there. So uh, the next question, uh, this may apply more to the, uh, the folks that are cargo owners, but again, open to everyone. So what should supply chain and logistics professionals be thinking about right now? And sort of related to that is, what skill sets matter the most in this environment? I can tell you what we are thinking about more uh, is yeah. uh, flexibility. Um, you know, we have, we have to have a goal of being highly reliable for you know downstream customers, whether they're partners or actual consumers. And uh, you know, we we've all for the past decade, pre-COVID, have been looking at metrics and stable work environments where we're used to hitting our numbers and our customers mm -hmm. are used to getting next day delivery and uh, trucks always show up at stores on time. Uh, and so this disruption has really called out the fact that the, the phrase supply chain, you know, implies that when a link breaks, the whole thing comes apart. And for many years, we've been more of a cable. We've been able to overcome challenges with a backup plan. And we've moved, we've seen right now that we are really subject to when one part breaks, the whole thing can come apart. And so redesigning uh, our thought process, a 7,000 mile supply chain, as Mr. Rooney said, is probably not good for everything. Uh, being highly reliable with some redundancy in our programs is probably what our customers are gonna demand going forward. They're not gonna cut us a break, obviously. It's going to get harder, not easier. And so that, that design element, redundancy in your planning, uh, having a backup and contingency plan, uh, and designing for flexibility is something that we're really pushing. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Rick. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, I think if, if we're looking for the short term, uh, the, uh, uh, the small to medium uh, BCOs, uh, my, my recommendation is stay the course right now. Uh, leverage your current carrier uh, MVO relationships as much as possible because uh, trying to, uh, pardon the pun, trying to jump ship in the middle of this pandemic to in, in thinking you're going to find salvation is, is uh, I think it's wishful thinking. Um, and in the long term, uh, if, if you're a smaller BCO, you don't have much leverage at all. Uh, try and find solutions uh, that will put you in a position where you are getting that leverage. And there, there are uh, methods out there or solutions out there. One thing I've seen in our industry, and especially with the small to medium uh, uh, BCOs, if you will, is there's a lack of, of education in, in shipping and logistics. Mm -hmm. And there's also a disconnect between the purchasing, uh, marketing, and the logistics department. It can be, it, it's funny to see the relationships. It seems to be quite often the purchasing department keeps logistics at arm's length. And sometimes I've even seen to be quite a contentious relationship, finger pointing, et cetera. And that's the worst thing anybody can have is a supply chain, an internal supply chain or team uh, teamwork that is uh, contentious relationships or not working together. And I think the pandemic 
uh, has actually opened people's eyes to realizing now that they have to have a teamwork between purchasing, a very, very close relationship between the purchasing and logistics people. And uh, hopefully the C-suite is gonna push more towards educating their logistics team and not just transferring when they lose a logistics member, not just transferring the guy from the warehouse that kind of understands shipping to that position, <laughs> which is which is quite common, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, uh, Sam, also educating the public. I think that uh, the industry is now more than ever out of the shadows and has to tell the story of supply chain so that the general public understands so that there can be investment and there can be change uh, on the public side, things that the industry needs to become more efficient. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. And the labor piece too is important and, car and decarbonization, all of those things are gonna be rolling down on uh, the supply chain industry. Yeah. You know, with, uh, it's gonna be interesting too, because I, I'll tell you what, the supply chain job right now, the purchasing job, is something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Um, having sat on that side of the desk for 40 plus years, I understand exactly the challenges in a normal uh, situation. I, I can't even imagine forecasting right now. When you consider that at, in the automotive industry, what I'm hearing commonly is a 50 to 60% fill rate right now. Uh, everybody's hair goes on fire in our industry when the fill rate goes below 92%. So, and then when you look at the rest of, of the, the market, if you will, outside of the automotive industry, that is, everybody's having fill rate problems. So everybody is chasing space. Everybody is chasing manufacturing. And how do you forecast for that? How do you forecast uh, your factory demand in Asia uh, from your competitors and hoping to get get uh, your inventories back to to some sort of semblance of normalcy, and that's going to be very interesting to play out in the next uh, uh, twelve to eighteen months and see how that what happens. Hey, hey Sam, uh, I'll let me jump in and, and mention one thing that we see in our company, and I'm sure uh, Rick and Steve are seeing it. The carriers as well. Ken, is that for us to process? Let's just use that word: process a load shepherd a load from origin to destination, it takes twice as much effort now. Mm -hmm. So we have, and, it, and it's put incredible stress on the people at our company who are operational level people, back office kind of people. And I'm sure it's the same at shippers at carriers. It's incredibly stressful. And basically it's doubled the work associated with moving one box. Okay. And, and it's, and it's, you know, and we have, we, we need to hire pe more people as well. We're looking at, it's very difficult, but I, can't forget that this has been incredibly stressful for the people who are the boots on the ground, who are actually doing the work to move the cargo, make the bookings, do the documents, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's it's crazy, and it's been really really tough on them. Great, uh, Ken, did you want want to jump in? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I I think one of the things about liner shipping is is really if you look at the last couple of decades, right? It's been it's an industry that has chronically had more capacity than it's required over the cycles, right? There's always been spikes, but, but generally speaking, a shipper could get a load on a ship pretty much at will most of the time. And I think as, and on your last question about, you know, industry consolidation, um, how you feel about regulatory regimes or not, I think it is an agreeable statement to say that supply and demand are now more easily managed, right? There's, it's, a tighter, it's a tighter gap between the two. 
And I think the, 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 the outcome of that is volatility. And so I think what we see today is, you know, if there's a factory problem in China or COVID or a port, um, both service and rates move quicker than they had in the past, right? It's a much more instant reaction that we see. And so I think when you talk about what is required for, for, for participants in the industry, how do we react and how do we, the counsel we give companies is, you know, I, I always say you can't manage what you can't measure. Um, and so really the data piece, the visibility, I think, you know, digitization of supply chain is, is an over, overused statement, but really having a really good view of where is your cargo, what's important of all the SKUs you're shipping, what needs to be here, what do you want here? I think that's a, that's a long-term trend and that's really a data-driven trend. And so the people in supply chain, you know, their ability to manipulate data and, and, and get data, integrate different data sets, I think that changes in, in the future um, significantly. I think, uh, thank you for that. We, we really have time for probably just really one more question uh, right here, and it's it's around trucking. Uh, we, we at the, uh, the Port Authority, we, we, we host a recurring stakeholder meeting uh, uh, now bi-weekly, managing through all the issues that we've been talking about here. And, and that also includes the trucking uh, industry. And one, one of the, and, I, and when I talk about the trucking industry, I'm not just talking about here the uh, port dredge uh, trucking industry, but one of the things we're hearing from the, the, the truckers themselves is, is that they're, they're doing okay with keeping the drivers that have been with them for a long time engaged. They kind of know what to expect, but really struggling on bringing in new people and then keeping them uh, kind of a, uh, this is not just anecdotal, but attracting new people. Uh, they do the job for a week at the port and then that, never to return and, and everything. So I mean, maybe just, a, and we're hearing there's a lot more opportunities, uh, last mile delivery, uh, I think uh, Amazon Logistics has a big uh, billboard advertisement on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike uh, for drivers. What uh, what are you seeing in your respective businesses with respect to to trucking, and uh, what needs to change, if anything? O open mic. <laughs> I'll, I'll go first. We're seeing. Um and I've said this a few times, a lot of competition in last mile. And so as national carriers put caps in place and rate increases in place, it opens the door for truckers to enter the, work, the workplace as independent contractors. And so whether you're hauling pharmacy prescriptions, which saw a massive increase through the pandemic and is really easy freight to deliver, uh, or you're uh, choosing to get into the last mile business or start your own over the road business, uh, when rates are as high as they are, and demand is as high as they are, is, is, is driving those rates up, you're going to see a lot of people get into business. And so we're seeing on the low end, smaller trucking companies be born every week uh, into the marketplace and choosing their freight wisely and, and sleeping in their own beds every night as drivers. And we've seen very little growth in the capacity in long haul over the road. Uh, mm -hmm. So that is a phenomenon that's pretty clear. And in fact, was just covered last week in a, in a forum just like this. Thanks, thanks, Rick. Anybody else? So we we continue to have drayage challenges up and up and down both coasts. Um, you know, I think the 
is really a there's a there's a public policy piece of things like clean truck or you know views on employees versus owner operators you know that's a public policy decision but there are real life consequences of them and, and I think you know policymakers have to think about as as you have a pool of labor um, are we making the situation better or worse both tactically on a day-to-day -day basis or strategically are we driving people into this into this industry? I mean, let's face it, the, the drage industry, um, you know, you, you can't you can't get a CDL till uh, till you're 21. Um, a lot of that workforce is is already doing something else. And so yep. are they going to, you know, quit their job and and come come haul containers when they get paid by the move um, and things aren't productive? And, and, and I'd say you know, my last thought on it would be I have a, a good friend in the drage business. And, and you know, he said, you know, the one thing that's different between you know Uber and, and and driving is I can't take my family to dinner in my Mack truck, and so if I'm making a choice as a, as, as a driver, do I want to go out and buy a hundred thousand dollar truck, um, or do I just go buy a suburban and and likely I can I can make the same money I can be home in my bed, and indeed I can take the family to dinner at night, um, and so I th I think the industry has a real challenge on on how do you attract um, new drivers. I think it's also an attrition of, of uh, you know, it's, it's an industry that's aging out. Um, and so we're not getting the new drivers in. And then I think, you know, ultimately inside the trucking world, the drage space probably has the hardest, you know, it's some of the, it's some of the hardest economics. And so attracting, you know, and keeping people in the drage space when they could potentially go over the road and make more money. Um, that's, that's a real thing. And so it either comes down to, you know, we have to make them more productive so they could make more money. Or, or, or there's going to be, you know, it's going to take money uh, in the form of rate increases to drive, you know, drive people into the into the space. Great. Th thank you, Kim. A anyone else want to weigh in on this? Yeah, Sam, just from an international standpoint, um, we're hearing from our members that, you know, this isn't just a U.S. issue. It's interesting. Um, yeah. We were on, the, uh, on a call with, with a with a bunch of government officials in the UK a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, they're just, you know, they're radically short of truck drivers and we're seeing it in, in various markets, you know, in Asia as well. And, you know, the causes are as varied as the, the countries we've talked to, but it's not, it's a short-term thing and it's not, uh, it's not geographically limited. We're seeing the same, same issues all around the world. Okay. Great. Sam, I would just throw in the, the, to echo, I think what Ken brought up was this issue of, are they employees or independent contractors? That's got to be resolved. Uh, and, it, you know, because it's going to disrupt, yeah. you know, potentially disrupt the, the business significantly. All I would add is that the way our system generally solves these problems is by increasing compensation. I mean, if you want to get more people <laughs> to do something, you pay them more. And I think it's going to come to that. It's going to yeah. have to come to that. If you want to get more people, younger people to do it, you got to pay them yeah. more. Yes. Um, so it's even true for port directors, uh, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, uh, we are at uh, uh, at our prescribed uh, uh, end, end of the time slot. Let, let me just say uh, to, to all of you, thank you so much for your your, your thoughtful perspectives, for sharing your perspectives. Uh, you know, I, I certainly learned a lot from the, the, this conversation. So I appreciate your time commitment. We're all, everyone's going full steam ahead here. So uh, really thank you for being part of this uh, panel. 
And with, with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Nick. Well, you know, my, my role is very easy because all I have to say is thank you for uh, a truly uh, amazing discussion. You know, this is a maritime focus conference, but when you think about it, mar ships carry cargo. And discussing exactly about all the issues that you raise uh, for the global supply chain, I, I think this has been a very different discussion, very unique and extremely helpful uh, to everybody. So uh, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for your time and, uh, and insight and, and, and foresight. So thank you very, very much. And I hope next year we can have it all in, uh, in person. And, and maybe some next year what we'll do and we can work together on that, is especially for our foreign guests who usually come all the time, maybe we can arrange for a tour of the port of New York. Absolutely. Uh, so they can pleasure. see. Yeah. Anyway, uh, to be continued again to all of you, tremendous thanks. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.